and welcome to Eastlake Online. My name is Brent, teaching pastor here at Eastlake. Thanks for being with us and watching this uh, on replay or, or perhaps live on Sunday morning. We're actually filming this uh, on a Thursday, Thursday afternoon, our first time in the history of uh, our quarantine kind of online stuff. We typically filmed live with you at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, but this weekend we are heading up to Coeur d'Alene with the leadership team, the board here at Eastlake to kind of dream about the next season. In fact, uh, Leslie, if you're watching this right now, I've made coffee and I'm right behind you serving you the coffee I just made you. Uh, anyways, uh, that's kind of a whatever. Anyway, <laughs> today we're finishing part three of, uh, we're finishing a series. This is part three. The series is called Through the Looking Glass. Um, a series on wonder. And the idea behind the series has been that um, Paul writes about how we kind of see through a glass dimly lit. Like we don't see everything kind of clearly right now. Um, And he talks about how in the future that that's going to be different. Like we'll see everything the way it's meant to be. But right now uh, we have like a jaded perspective. And I I think that that's definitely true. Um, we, We have a frame of reference and every once in a while in that frame of reference, something comes along that's outside of our frame of reference. We don't understand it. Whether it's scientific, it might be like, um, we have an understanding of how time works and gravity works. And then scientists go, well, yeah, except like this certain version of how things work in space and time, the time continuum is all warped. We're like, I don't understand that. That's, that's a sense of wonder, right? Or we have a sense of what we think animals, like the animal kingdom up, is made up of. And then every once in a while, science comes along and goes, well, we found this fish and like, a mile deep of water and it looks like this and we've never seen one before and we have no idea what it's at. Or I was, I was um, uh, driving along recently with somebody who works um, with the uh, Fish and Wildlife and they pointed out to some Hanford land. We were driving through the Hanford land. They pointed to the mountains and they said, uh, the, the land out there is such a unique uh, uh, ecosystem that there are animals out there that exist that are not found not found anywhere else in the world and yet we don't really go out and manage all that or explore all of that because it's like protected land right now and it's got nuclear and you turn into a mushroom or something like that but uh, anyways uh, that's crazy that's uh, that's amazing that's a that's a positive sense of wonder i have i have a framework of what i think the world looks like and then I read a book and my sense of wonder is expanded and, and goes along the, with this. Now, not, it doesn't only just work with like a natural wildlife or, or animals or, or even how the world works. A lot of times it has to do with our ethics and, and what we feel like is right or wrong or our moral compass. I have a feeling that this is right. Like this is what I'm supposed to do. And, and, uh, and then every once in a while something comes along or, or, or I have a, a sense of conviction about my faith or my belief systems or my religion. And then I read a book right? Or then a a professor kind of challenged me, or then I had a friend who said, well, have you thought about this? And you begin to wonder, and perhaps that wonder led you to wander away from faith. And maybe you're watching this, and you've been a wanderer of the faith, or um, or your hand is like, you're you're in, but like your hand's on one door, like like getting ready to kind of leave. And and I get it, because there's been a perception that religion and the, the Bible and whatever is kind of resistant to wonder. There's, there's a sense in which we think this is what we're supposed to believe. This is all encompassing. Just read this. And this is going to have all of the answers to every question you have about life when it comes to ethics. And then like something else comes and we go, I don't know, this doesn't, this whole thing that I grew up with, the faith that I inherited from my parents doesn't answer all of my questions. And my wonder leads to my eventual wandering. And perhaps that doesn't have to be so. And, and uh, so we affirm this idea that we definitely look through a looking glass, that we, we don't see things all 
you know, we're not coming through it with a blank slate. There's always implicit bias with, with, with this. And it came up again for me this week as I took kind of a vocabulary test through the, there's like a New York Times article that's been going around for a few years now. Um, and it's all about how um, if you answer these 25 questions and pick which word you would use to describe this thing, we'll tell you in general what area of the country that you're from. If you want to take the test yourself, uh, in the notes section, if you scroll down, if you're watching this from eastlaketricities.com slash live, or if you are in the app, you'll have to get out of this and go into the notes section and follow along there. There's a link that I provided for you to do this yourself, but 25 questions that you answer, and then we're going to go with this. I, I found a few of them that I just want to highlight for you and just kind of, it's not going to finish the test for you, but you'll get a sense of what we're talking about with this. So question number one was simply, when you walk into a room uh, of people, there's, and there's two or more people there, what do you, how do you re- refer to them? Is it you all? Is it yous? You lot? You guys? You ones? Yins? Who just says yins? You, other, or y'all, right? And so um, you can kind of tell where that one's going. Uh, question number two would be something like this. What do you call the small gray bug that curls up into a ball when it's touched? These are the things that my kids love to kind of just, you know, collect and put in little cages like, like rock. Like they build a fence with rocks and they stick them in there. Is it a pill bug, a doodle bug, potato bug, roly-poly? That's the right answer. So bug, a basketball bug, twiddle bug. Anyways, all of these different options. And the, the last one, this was the one that I found most interesting because some of those I feel like are really obvious. This one was a little less obvious. See if you can catch it. What do you call it when rain falls while the sun is shining? We've been outside and sun's shining. It's like, it's sprinkling. This is crazy. Do you call it a sun shower? That's a reasonable answer. The wolf is giving birth. What are you talking about? The de- This is my favorite one. The devil is beating his wife. Now, listen, if you and I were outside and the sun is shining and it starts raining, and you looked up at the sky and you said, ah, the devil's beating his wife again. Um, I would say you need to get out more and we cannot be friends anymore. Like that, this, is, this is it. <laughs> it was really nice knowing you and I've got to move on with this. Um, anyway, monkey's wedding, fox's wedding. I, I just think that they're making up words, which is, means that the right answer is I have no term or expression for this, which is the one that I clicked. Now, I did all this, answered all 25 questions, took me five minutes or so. And uh, the three cities that they said you most identify with in terms of big cities uh, were Spokane, Boise, and Salt Lake City. And I was like, and it, like, they, they do like a color-coded region, and southeastern Washington was like a deep red. Obviously, they kind of had known. Now, the skeptic side of me, or the cynic side of me, or whatever said, well, yeah, but they got my IP address, and so they, they know where I'm accessing this test from, therefore, you know, to try and prove themselves right, they did this. So what I did was I clicked on my VPN, which, don't judge me, I have a VPN, but it's so that uh, MLB TV blocks out Mariners games, and so I have to watch them from Dallas sometimes. So I took the test from Dallas. Um, and, uh, in, as I took this test, it was surprising. Some of the questions changed, but the answers came up the same. Um, it put me in the same category, which made me feel like, man, maybe I do. Maybe I think what is neutral or natural or everybody calls it this isn't actually true. Like perhaps I am bringing an implicit bias into something that I don't think, I I think this is normal. Everybody should do this. This is just truth. This is how you say this. Don't call it the, white, the, the devil's beating his wife or whatever. This is, this is just a sun shower. This is just something else. Anyways, um, that just reflects onto us the reality that we do see through a glass dimly lit, that Paul is speaking truth when he writes that, that everything that we see, that when we say, no, this is what's true, and I don't know how to deal with wonder coming in from the outside, like perhaps our perspective is a little bit jaded. 
Perhaps we have a bias that we're walking into. This is gonna be true for politics. This is gonna be true for what you believe about mass or don't believe about mass. Everything else, everything comes down into this idea, which then causes us, if, we're like, if we carry out this out to its rational conclusion, what, what is true then? What is truth? I mean, Pilate asked that questions about Jesus. What is truth as he's interviewing him, right? And the book of Hebrews gives us, and we said this at the very beginning of the series, a little bit of firm ground, a little bit of terra firma to say, listen, it is, you are able to accept wonder and not let that drive you away from the faith, especially when the core of your faith is in a person and not a pastor, not a church, not a thing, not, a, not the inerrancy of scripture, not any, anything of those, but something a little bit more core, a little bit more true. So Hebrews has this, um, this sermon basically to a wandering group of people who are questioning their faith. And the author writes and he says, here's my admonition to you. Here's my recommendation. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Some would say the beginning and the end or the author and perfecter of our faith. Go, don't stop anywhere short of this. And, and this is a big deal. This is, what's, this is basically them saying this God of the Old Testament is best known through the person of Jesus. If you stick with Jesus, you're probably gonna get the rest of it right right? Um, and this was difficult news for his disciples to hear. If this is tough for us, it was tough for them, and they spent time with him. So much so that uh, at the Last Supper in John chapter 14, he's having conversations with them. He's breaking the news that he's about to leave them, um, and then he says this to them, believe me when I tell you that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, um, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. He would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you've looked upon me, you know exactly what the Father is like. And then Philip goes, well, just tell us who the Father is and that'll be enough. He's like, I am, I'm it. Like this, I can be the point of reference for you. That you can, if you can fix your eyes on here and then go from here and explore the wonder of my creation, at least you'll have something to say, well, what is truth? We have this, or, or, or at least the author of Hebrews would say, we, as Christians, this is what Christianity offers, a sort of firm ground by which to go off of and explore all of the rest of this. Now, the author of Hebrews, we're gonna stick back in there today uh, where he's not done teaching us a little bit uh, from this of what we can learn. Um, again, it's a sermon to some wanderers. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, there comes a verse that is probably, you've probably heard before. I think we've talked about it at least like a handful of times, even in messages, specifically ones about faith. Um, and I, I bring that up because I think a lot of times when we are uh, approached with a sense of wonder, uh, when something comes out of our frame of reference and we're like, I wonder if that's true. I wonder how this works. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And then we feel like the boundaries of faith say, ignore your wonder, focus in on what you need to behave like and just match your behavior to this belief system or whatever. We don't have a place for wonder and that influences us to sort of walk away. And the message oftentimes is you just need to have more faith. I know that that doesn't like factor into kind of what you believe. And so just have more faith um, or, and it's like, it's like this feeling of what, what is that? Like more more emphasis, more focus, more attention, more, what do you mean more faith in this way? So the author of Hebrews defines faith for us. So we're gonna look at in chapter 11, verse one today. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. There's a couple of words that show up in this. One is this idea of hope. 
What, this is confidence in the things that we hope for. We can hope for a lot of different things. Hope is simply this, wanting something to be with no guarantee. And I made it rhyme for you just to make sure you can write it down and remember it or whatever. But hope is wanting something to be and there's no guarantee that it's gonna happen. And we go through phases in life where we hope for different things. I hope that I get this job. I hope that I get this promotion. I hope that my kids are healthy. I hope I don't catch COVID. I hope that I hope and I hope and I hope. And we have no confidence in this. Uh, in, 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 it has nothing to do with um, I want it to be. I want it to be. I want to will it to be. I want to um, like in, enforce some sort of magic that I can say things and do things a certain way and then it will be. This is just a statement of the reality that we find ourselves hoping something to be. And what makes us confident than hope so will eventually be so. What moves us, because he's saying here, faith is confidence in what we hope for. I hope for a lot of things. How do we get this confidence? We get it because of assurance about what we do not see. How do we get from I don't see it to now I'm absolutely sure it's going to happen? And we all know the answer to that question because if you've ever hoped for a promotion, at what point do you believe that this is actually going to happen? You can want this, but what makes you confident it's going to happen? What makes you confident it's going to happen is your boss walking into your office or your cubicle and going, hey, I'm going to give you a promotion. I think that you've done great, and I think all of these factors come in, and you've been with us for X amount of years or whatever, and you're gonna, I'm going to move you up. You don't go home that day and tell your spouse, hey, I'm hopeful that I'm going to get a raise. I'm hopeful that I'm going to get that promotion. Honey, I hope it. She would say or he would say, what do you mean you hope it? Of course, we all hope it. You would say, I have confidence that the promotion is coming because my boss said it was. Like they said it and I, I'm going off of the assumption that what they're saying is true. So now it comes into the confidence of, my, of the integrity of the person that I work for. I mean, there's still some of that in question, but that's the difference between kind of hoping something would happen and having confidence that it will how much trust do I put in the person who's telling me it's going to happen? Faith is essentially this then. If hope is this, you know, hoping something to be, that's, but there's no guarantee. Faith is confidence that God is uh, who he is and will do what he's promised us he'll do. So to approach wonder and say, you just have to have more faith. You have to have more faith. It's not a, I got to hope, I got to hope, I got to hope, I got to hope. It's not some sort of magic or a force thing. It's confidence that God is who he says he is and that he's gonna do what he says he will do. And then the author of Hebrews to try and build a case for why we should have confidence, why we should believe that God has the authority to follow through on his promises, he goes through like this track record or history. He says, this is what the ancients were commended for. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, he's gonna go through this, what we call a hall of fame sort of faith people, right? He lists a bunch of Old Testament people who are famous and stories and names that as soon as I said them, you would know some of them. He says names like Abraham. Now, not, not by faith, Abraham left where he was from, left this city of Ur, like everything he'd ever known and his future's tied up in this. And he went off into the wilderness to go wander because of God called him and he pulled him outside one day and he says, I've got a plan for you. I've got, I want to make you into this great nation. I'm going to do all kinds of things in this way. I just need you to leave. I need you to leave. By faith, he left. He had confidence that God was going to follow through in this. By, by faith, Moses led the people through this exodus out of Egypt and out of a slavery system into a promised land. They, they, they had confidence that God is what he is, is who he says he is, and that he'll do what he said he's gonna do. They didn't, listen, he didn't by faith 
like go out and be like, you're gonna do this for me. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it wasn't by his own initiative and he didn't change God's mind into something. God, God wasn't like, well, I wasn't really thinking about rescuing my people, but Moses, now that you bring it up, let's go do it. That sounds like a great idea. Or if you'll pray a certain amount of times or have a certain level of confidence or a level of hope, it was simply a response to what God said he wanted to do. And I believe that you're gonna come through and help me get to this point. So over and over, and the reason that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews gives this long list of people, he's trying to build a case for why we and his people, his audience can trust God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he, he'll do. He has a track record of keeping his promises. So Moses, so Abraham, so all of these different names that goes through with this. All of these people, verse 13, were still living by faith when they died. In other words, every day they lived in a way that echoed the idea that God keeps his promises. And throughout scripture, what we see are people who live their entire life in this way. And some of them even died without seeing those promises fulfilled. One of the promises that God makes to Abram in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse two is this, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will make you into a great nation. Now, when Abraham died, his nation was him, his wife, and his son. That's not even a big family. That's like, that's not even, that's not even replacement value in terms of childbearing, right? At one point, when he's on his deathbed, he's going, man, I, I, I thought you said great nation, right? And, and yet, when we look at the world today and how many billions of people are part of religion who tie their, their faith ancestry to um, this idea of we are an offspring of Abraham, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, I mean, a significant majority of the world's religions currently today have this great nation, are, are an example of this great nation going on. I will bless you and I will make your name great. How many of you prior to me talking about Abraham knew a little bit about who Abraham was? You knew the song that goes along with it, right? You may not even be religious. And Abraham's such a popular name. This is, this, is, uh, this is an example of this. And you'll be a blessing to all peoples on earth, which is, by the way, not a very typical behavior for nations. Most nations are obsessed with kind of themselves and building walls to keep things in. And God says to Abram, you're gonna lead a nation that's gonna be a little bit different. You're gonna be a people who are obsessed about the, well, the well-being of other people. And for a while there, it's, it's the nation of Israel specifically. And then that kind of expands in, in the New Testament to the New Testament church. And it's like this, we are this new Israel and the church operates as a blessing to the world. We're lucky to have them here. Hopefully that's how people view Christians and, and how they're supposed to view Christians in the church. But that's a unique perspective, a unique a unique way of being in the world. And, and this all comes through, this is again, further proof that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do. Nobody used faith as magic to get God to do something he didn't already want to do. And I know that that's a very dangerous kind of perspective and, and I'll get back to that in a second. But fast forward, um, a, a man covered in leprosy approaches Jesus one day. Because how does this play out? Great, it's Old Testament and we can talk about how they came through and, and, and God came through, that's, that's great. How do we see this played out in the life of Jesus? Um, one day, Jesus is approached by a man with leprosy and we, you know, we don't really have leprosy as a problem. It's not like you, know, you go in and go, I think this might be leprous, I'm not sure though. Um, for the most part, it's kind of eradicated in our, uh, our world, at least the, the uh, kind of first world. It's not really a first world problem. Anyways, um, 
but it's a skin thing and it was a bad deal and they, it was highly contagious and, and they would kind of push them into leper colonies and they would um, say, we don't even want to deal with you. And so if you got leprosy, you basically said goodbye to your family forever. Um, this man shows up and, and goes up to Jesus at one point and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And look at the words, look at the vernacular and the, the vocabulary that he uses here. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Like, I believe that you can. I believe that you can. I believe that you can. Like this, like this little engine that could or whatever. It's like, no, his, his point is, listen, there's, you've had enough history of healing people. Like your story, your reputation precedes you. I know you have this ability. I don't know if you will. So I'm giving you this out. If you're not willing, I know that I, I, there's nothing I can do to change your mind. But if you're willing, you can make me clean. Why would a leper be completely confident that Jesus could heal him? Because he knew that Jesus had healed other people. He didn't approach Jesus because of faith. He didn't approach Jesus, I have faith that you'll, like, that you'll do this. I have faith, I'm, I like this amount of magic that I can work. And if I say the right things or do the right things or I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. He approached Jesus because of evidence. This again ties back to this evidence that, he, that, the history, that uh, Jesus talks about. If you don't believe me that I am in the Father, look at at least the evidence of what this is. Look at the, how the evidence points to this way. This man approached Jesus because like, listen, I, I, I'm going off of what I know. This isn't, I'm, this isn't antithetical to wonder. Anyways, verse 12, he, or he continues on. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached at his hand and he touched the man, which was major no-no. You don't touch people. You stay six feet away from them and you wear a mask the entire time. I am willing, he said. I am willing. And perhaps this kind of goes against everything you've thought about in terms of the church that you grew up in or the religion that you made aware of where faith was kind of like this force or a, a thing of magic and you, if you have enough or you pray enough, things will happen. And um, you came, you had a legitimate prayer. Um, uh, you had a legitimate request from God and God, you need to do this and please do this and please do this. And then she didn't get healed or he didn't get healed and she ended up passing away and, and prayers go unanswered and then you begin to wonder like, is this, is this, is he even here? Is he able to do any of these things? Is, I, this is, I, I figured that you would um, hear the prayer of a repentant sinner and then absolutely do something to respond out of the grace and the abundance of love that you have. And yet she died. Um, so I don't know, I don't know then uh, what, what to do with that. That that's falls out of my frame of reference for what I think a loving God would look like. And that kind of a picture of what God is like has unfortunately been portrayed, I think, in so many versions and expressions of church um, where it's been really popular to be like, hey, if you have a need, come here. We believe in a God who heals. And we do, I do believe in a God who heals. Um, but then it was like the more time you put in here, the more prayers you put in here, the more money you put in the plate, um, increase your chances of God doing something for you. And so you tried that and you went down that road and then it didn't work. And then that led you to kind of wonder if it was all just a sham and a money grab in the first place. And then you began to wander. Maybe you wandered because God didn't match a legitimate prayer. A generation, I think, is abandoning faith because the church has signed God's name to promises that he never made. And we begin, it's like God is this cosmic vending machine or something like that. And that's just not, that's when this verse is 
pulled out of this and we say, and we hear pastors say, now faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things we haven't seen and you gotta just believe harder and do more and whatever. And that, that can like severely impact our ability to wonder. It, over, it, over, it supersedes Jesus at the core of our faith and brings into it uh, at the core of our faith a better life, a, a, um, a supernatural tool to fix things, a, a, a therapy, a therapeutic deism, is, a moralistic therapeutic deism is a, is a big thing. And, and that becomes the center of it. And that, that's just off. That's just off from what it's supposed to be in this way. God's promise is more full of wonder than any of those things. And Paul, the same Paul who would say, we see through a glass uh, dimly lit and talk about the centrality of Christ and him crucified. And that's the one thing that is worth fighting for and looking for or whatever, illustrates this for us in Romans chapter five, as he kind of puts together this summary teaching for this Roman church who's suffering through persecution, what it means to be solidly placed within the center of the gospel. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Here's what we know we have This is the confidence that we have. This is faith, confidence in this. While we were still sinners, while we did not deserve it, based on no activity of our own, not out of a, you've been pretty good, let me see what I can do for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the gospel is simply this. God acted out of his own volition on our behalf, that we no longer have to question where we stand with God. God sent his son to stand on our side of the thing, on our side of the frame of reverence, so we would always know where we stood with him. While we were still sinners, he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. The trustworthiness of God is settled right here for Paul. And this is the invitation of Christianity. We no longer have to wonder about that. We can wonder about all of the things of creation because we have security in this. We know where we stand with God. We know what God looks like and what he wants from us. The trustworthiness is settled right here and not in some sort of answered prayer or whatever. And this is the wonder that we should never lose. We are all invited to fix our eyes on Jesus, not because of faith in the form of focused desire. I really want it. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. But because he's provided us with enough evidence to believe that while our minds, uh, he's provided us with enough evidence to believe while our minds catch up with the wonder of creation. Here's the evidence. Here's the core. Here's the picture. Fix your eyes on Jesus not on a church, not on a pastor, not on a book, not on a nothing, not on an answered prayer. Like those are all great, good things, but not the best thing. When you have this centered, it allows you then to incorporate the wonder of the world, whether it's through natural creation or the moral ethical kind of what ifs, what about this and have you thought about this or whatever. With all that we don't know and with all that we'll never know, we are invited to fix our eyes. And one last thing, coming to John, and I'll close with this and finish up this entire series with John's perspective on this. Because again, I mentioned in John, John had his take. He was the fourth gospel writer. Um, he wrote probably late in life. Um, uh, he was for, for almost for sure wrote his material about who Jesus was after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written some of their stuff. And some of that was in circulation. So he really didn't feel any need to uh, compete with them or um, provide the same timeline as them. He, he's like, a, I'm, let me write my own personal memoir, which is 
far more emotive and far more personal than any of the others. Some of the others are just like factual. Here's what happened and then this and then this and then this. John's got all kinds of takes on it. He's got, he provides his own personal commentary on it. He opens up uh, his gospel with this idea of in the beginning was the word and the word was the logos was with God and the logos was God. It's, it's right from the beginning you can tell he's kind of a, an, an artistic kind of creative, uh, not necessarily just a methodical kind of writer. Um, he probably seen quite a bit in his life. He watched his best friend. He was part of the kind of core group of disciples, but even within that core, he was one of the top three, basically, Peter, James, John. Um, and so the access to Jesus, the stories, the, all of that is, is so unique. And he, he writes this after watching Jesus come and go, um, after watching the crucifixion, the resurrection, after watching Peter and the early church kind of begin out of Jerusalem, kind of expand into Antioch and into all of the kind of places that they would go and the story of Paul and his conversion. And, and, and significantly too, um, probably written after the fall of Jerusalem. We know that from like secular history in AD 70, um, the outside forces come in, the Roman forces come in, they're kind of done with uh, Jerusalem and, and the, the Judean kind of revolt and the rebelliousness of these, this, these stubborn people. And, and so instead of just dealing with them, they just kind of destroy their temple and, and tear down their walls. And, and there's massive, there's like a siege for a couple of years and, and they watch as um, the, the siege is so bad that the, the, the people within the walls are, are, are trying to decide who lives and who dies because there's not enough food to go around. And it was just total destruction of the temple and really the demolishing, the demoralization of the Israelite nation, kind of thinking to themselves, you know, God's going to save us. God's going to save us. God's going to save us. Our, our Yahweh God, we're a chosen nation. We're the lucky ones. And then nothing comes through for them. And they're trying to deal with, maybe we were wrong the entire time. This is after all of that, right? All of that has kind of come and gone. And Judaism is left with this rubble and they're looking around going, what do we do with all of this? How do we make sense of any of this? Was all of this a sham the entire time? What do we believe? And into that sort of an environment, John pins these words as he reflects on who Jesus was and the significance. After talking about how God made himself known through the person of Jesus, the Logos is known to us. He writes this, in him was life. And, all that, and, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He says, in spite of the darkness that we find ourselves in, there existed a light and no amount of darkness could ever, ever overcome that. In him was life. I saw something there. And that life was the light of all mankind. And so, from, it's very, very clear from the track record of history, it, the early church immediately took upon this idea of making Jesus the center of the faith, the cornerstone, uh, the thing, the house of cards. If you take out that, everything crumbles, but everything else, everything else is kind of a, a little bit workable. Everything else is an understanding of, well, what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about Jesus? And any time that the church has drifted away from not making Jesus the core, but something else, some other core teachings, uh, some sort of um, uh, um, like systems or um, uh, allowances or purgatory or, or all kinds of different, anything other than this is a defection away from what it's, the centrality of what it's supposed to be. So may we be the type of people who fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And with that core in place, then we can begin to truly 
experience and understand the wonder of his creation. And that wonder doesn't lead us to wander because we have something firm to stand upon that John says is the light of life and that the darkness cannot overcome it. May we be the type of people who grasp that, understand that, and live with that. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that no matter what kind of wonder we experience in life, that we know, we know, we know, we go back to Jesus, we go back to Jesus, we go back to Jesus. And, and with that in place, then the wonder of the world just is another just amazing experience to be like, oh, man, how much do we not understand about what you've done? How much do we, even 2,000 years uh, after Jesus walked this planet, are we still like, that's cool, that's awesome, that's amazing. Thank you for the work of scientists who continually shorten that list of what we don't know and, and in doing so obviously expand it even more so. Uh, thank you for the historians who do the work of reliving this history to kind of make this stand out and, and, and spark this, uh, this, this perspective of how you have been at work in the world up to this point and all of the different avenues at which we find wonder, all the different stories and the creatives that drive us to wonder, to wonder, to wonder. And maybe in our wondering, uh, may, may we be the type of people who know we've got something to fall back on. And that is, as Paul describes to the Romans, uh, that you, while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us, that your love uh, was made evident to us so that we never have to wonder where we stand with you. And may that spark the way that we live our life. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with that, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen. All right. Um, real quickly, just a couple of announcements and then I will let you go. Um, there's a connect card that I would love for you to fill out if you're watching this online via the desktop. Scroll down a little bit. Let us know who's watching and if there's any prayer requests that we can partner up with you or life updates as well. If you're watching this via the app, you're going to have to get out of this and then make sure to submit the connect card so we know who's watching this. As I mentioned, we are on a board retreat right now. Um, I would love for you um, to help uh, us with, there's a survey question that we kicked out last week in the weekly email. And even though we've probably kind of dialogued through some of the questions um, at, at the board retreat, th th that's gonna be really helpful information for us to get a pulse of kind of where everybody's at in terms of kind of even reopening strategies and, and uh, practice, best practices strategies. Um, so even though it's probably a little bit behind, I, I still think it would be incredibly useful if you have time to go to eastlaketricities.com slash survey or pull up the weekly email from this last week. Take about three minutes of your time and let us know where you're at on that. Next week, we're starting a brand new series. Um, it's gonna be uh, called Waiting for the Barbarians, a series on failure. Um, so we'd love to have you back for a four-part series on failure. And uh, other than that, have a great week, guys. I'm gonna read a benediction for you and then send you on your way. Here's what it says. Lord, may your trumpet sound in the songs that we sing, in the prayers we pray, in the lives we live, in the bread we break. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. May that go with you. We love you guys. Have a great week. See you next week.